the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, powered by Bond University's Building Information Modeling Program. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm talking with Caitlin Shields, who is a partner at Mitchell Brantman. Today, we're going to discuss a topic I covered off back on episode 18 in uh, 2019. It has been four years since I covered this, and the BIM world has moved forward a lot since then. But before I start my interview with Caitlin, I need to talk to you about our exclusive sponsor. Bond University are leading the way in BIM education in Australia through their Masters of Building Information Modelling and Integrated Project Delivery course. They also have their micro-credential offerings. Now, these courses were the first and remain the only university courses to be formally accredited by Building Smart Australasia. And they are recognised internationally with a special mention for leadership in open BIM and education in the professional research category of the 2020 Building Smart International Awards. So head over to the Bond University website via the link in the show notes to learn more about their educational offerings. So now on to the interview. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Now, Caitlin, we've known each other for over a decade, I think it's been. Mm. Um, and sadly, you know, you've, you've taken on a new role uh, in your life as well. But And we haven't caught up for a couple of years. But for those that don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Caitlin Shields. I'm a director at Mitchell Brantman, Queensland. I specialise in the cost planning and contract admin department. Um, I've been at Mitchell Brantman for 17 years, so straight out of school into their cadetship program, uh, straight into uni at the same time, gone through that and been here ever since. Um, I'm passionate about the profession in terms of quantity surveying, but especially about BIM. I've lectured at various universities, I've spoken at national and international conferences, um, and I am a mum of two young kids, so my focus at the moment is the work-life balance. And that's a very challenging thing to do, um, <laughs> something that I think we all forget about when we're entering that kind of that challenging time within our career. But I think it, you know, it's exciting to see um, yourself representing women at, at the leadership level and being a mother at the same time and That'd be a discussion in itself for another podcast, I think. But, but <laughs> we sure won't <laughs> we won't touch on that today. But but also for those people that are not aware of who Mitchell Brantman is, um, can you explain to the listeners what services you provide to your clients? Yeah, sure. So we're a private quantity surveying firm, a PQS firm. We've been around for fifty three years. We have offices down the eastern coast of Australia, uh, with offices in the major cities, but also regional representatives along the way. We offer cost planning and contract admin services, financier QS services, superintendent and advisory services, and tax and asset services. Now, well, I'm going back a few years now, and I'm going back, I think it's probably four years, back to episode 18 where I spoke to Tracy Burnham and, and Colleen Ingle-Mallon about the role that quantity surveyors are playing on projects. Mm -hmm. At that time, I asked them whether or not the BIM at the time had actually kind of made a change in project delivery over the last decade. Um, so moving forward to today, 
It's four years on from that time, that day when I actually spoke to them. Do you believe there's been much change over the last four, five years, say? Um, no, not really, to put it <laughs> short. <laughs> four years is a very small time in our industry, I think, and it, it takes a lot of time to make change. And BIM certainly has come a long way, but I do feel it's reached this kind of plateau Uh, The level of excitement isn't as abundant. And so it's kind of reached this peak where people that are good at it are good at it. People that are not interested yet aren't interested unless they're forced to be interested. And so we're kind of working up to this point of BIM is around. BIM is definitely helping. BIM is definitely helping out in projects and in project delivery. But there's still barriers along the way, essentially. In terms of quantity surveying in that picture, it's it's kind of the same deal. We're very fortunate that our services are there, whether BIM or not. We're a very broad service range. Like I said at the start, we offer services from conception through to completion and then maintenance of a building. So at any different point, we can plug in. And BIM is a tool to that. It's helped with that. But ultimately, our best use is engaging us from start to completion. Um, so I don't think in essence, as a core QS service, we haven't changed that much. Just the tools that are helping us and our relevancy in that is changing. Yeah, well, that's essentially what it is, isn't it? But mm. Hopefully, as a as a process or a delivery, the professions and all of the professions, not just quantity surveying. Yeah, that's right. We're not changing what we're providing. It's just the method of getting there. Yes. Now, Mitchell Brantman, and I know, you know, you, oh, I can't remember, it would have been, you would have been presenting, I think, at one of our first Brisbane's, I reckon, in the first year, I think. <laughs> I'd have to go back and, and double check. Yeah. But Mitchell Bremen have been on the forefront of technology adoption uh, as part of their process. So that's a that's a really big, important piece of the puzzle. And I think we might, I might go and touch back on that in a second. But mm-hmm. first of all, before we talk about yourselves, more so kind of broadly at the profession level, how are you seeing the profession move forward as a whole from a quantity surveying perspective? You know, <laughs> it's always this interesting conversation. I see it even within the architects and I was at a webinar a couple of months ago and I was cringing when they were talking about 3D CAD and I and there was a webinar run by the Institute. I'm going, oh, come on, gosh. Is this how far behind the majority are? Yeah. What's it like in the quantity surveying profession? Yeah, so I think we've come a long way and certainly, yeah, we've been attending the same conferences as yourselves for many years and back in those early years it was probably us and a few others. So fast forward 10, 15 years, we're seeing more and more faces in the QS world start to speak the language, start to get engaged with it. But still, as what you've said with your profession, the wider majority of still there's no motive really to get there except maybe your own practices. So if people are self-interested to make their own processes better, you know, there's software that can help you in a 2D and a 3D sense. Mm. But I still think there's a long way to go. We're still going to conferences and talking about the basics of like what does a QS want out of a model? And that's education for our own profession but also to educate other people with how to interact with us as well. And we sit back and think, oh, we've been doing this for years, you know. Where's that breakthrough where we start to move beyond that conversation? In your last podcast with the RLB ladies, you did mention the the AIQS and the NZIQS BIM guidelines. So that must be at least four or five years Mm. old now. And that's a great document. I went back and reflected on it actually because it is just a basics. Anyone can pick it up and kind of get this overall snapshot of BIM, how a QS interacts with that. I think that helped a lot and I just think there's a there's still a long ways to go essentially for ourselves and how we interact with other industry consultants. So 
and and as you're speaking right then I'm reflecting on you know the the my involvement with Brisbane and my involvement with Built ANZ and and thinking that the conversations we have every year are the same <laughs> and and maybe that's the scenario when you look at that adoption kind of graph and and the early adopters are sitting there in that 5% realm mm. and we almost need to act as the educators year on year and I'm, and I'm and I'm thinking of other things I'm involved with at the moment where it's almost kind of like you've got school kids going through and it's almost like you're teaching them year one to year 12 constantly yeah. until we get industry to a level where over 50% of the industry is actually uh, educated mm. because we're not there yet yeah and when this it, it seems like for people that have been doing it for years that it seems like it's the same conversation well maybe yeah. it has to be <laughs> and all we've got to do is just try and find easier ways of communicating it to people yeah. in which they well, can it, proceed forward yeah or there's a different carrot or stick situation you know what I mean is um a big thing that I've been reflecting on is there's a lot of individual people and companies that have taken it upon themselves to skill up and We're fortunate in the Brisbane market to play with some really cool people that have that skill set. A lot of that was built off the back of project services and when they were talking about mandating it, project services broke down, those individuals Mm. spread across the industry. So we've had a real grassroots level of motivation, but wider than that, what is the motivation? So then we start talking about, again, for a few years now, the mandate. Who's going to be the government or the institution that goes, we must do it, therefore everyone needs to upskill. And so the skills are there to be learned. There's tools there to help with the learning of it. It's just when do we need to do it? When's the client saying, I definitely want this Mm. and I want to see it right the way through. And we don't take opportunistic um, fees out of that and saying, well, that's going to cost you extra. Mm. Why is it costing extra? What's the client got to do with that when they just want a project delivered this way or this way or this Mm. way? Well, there's one thing that I that I think about it quite a bit, and it was in some scenarios where a government agency, and I won't name names, from one government agency in Australia, not specifically Queensland. So I'll broaden the broaden the uh, the argument. Sorry, I name names. The interesting thing that I found was is that the government were that agency was prescribing that 5D BIM, which I I, I hate the dimensions, and I know it was one of the <laughs> things that you guys promoted a hell of a lot. Oh yeah. Thanks to Mr Mitchell many a <laughs> year ago. But if we take the step back from that, and I'm I'm very much a person that believes in a client prescribing an outcome rather than the methodology. Mm, I think that to me is most important. What are your thoughts on clients mandating that process to you as a profession and saying you have to do this? Is that at the end of the day your role as a quantity surveyor is to determine and estimate Mm. volumes, quantities, uh, costs, et cetera? Yeah. Uh, is it is it really, and I like throwing kind of real left field ones yeah, at you. Yeah, you got me it, thinking. It probably won't be one. It, maybe we'll have to park it, but if it's <laughs> something that you can answer, it to me I actually think it's a challenge and I think, mm. it's, I think it's a wrong approach. And it's the same thing where you have clients, and I'll throw it out of the whole quantity surveying thing together, but where they're mandating clash detection being done. Right. At the end of the day, you need to specify to your design team that you would like the design coordinated. Mm. The methodology of how they get there is another story. It's, it's, it's a, it should be for that supply chain to determine how they achieve it. Yeah, yeah. I think I already know your answer. You're like, yeah, okay, I kind of agree with you. But at the same time, <laughs> I want industry to move forward. So maybe well, I push the button too far with that one. No, well, this is the thing. It's a, it's a hard uh, position to be in is that I truly believe mandates would kind of force mm. an outcome to a point. But certainly – and. 
we're fortunate we're in a position that could deal with that if it was mandated to us because we've been doing it for so long. And that's why I believe uh, institutions like the AIQS, NZIQS made these guidelines to be like, if this mandate does come, we need to be able to support our profession in getting yep. up to that. Yep. So it's kind of this, well, which one first? You can't, another angle is the carrot approach, right, rather than the stick and say, well, clients said the best position to be in for BIM to be enabled is an asset retaining owner mm. and owning the carrot of we want to take this right the way through. I think people that are really into BIM are like get excited about it, you know, disregarding fees or whatever or whatever's going to happen along the way. Let's do this. Let's do a project that sees it from start to finish because there's not many that have completed that whole BIM utopian picture. Mm. The carrot hasn't really worked at this point because things get too hard along the way. So I think, yeah, mandates work for an effect. I don't necessarily think it's right. It would get an outcome though. Well, maybe maybe my suggestion was probably a bit too heavy-handed in it, but taking a step back from that again is looking at the approach that the Singapore government's taken with mm. regards to their BIM implementation. Obviously they've got some different challenges being the size of the country that they are and they need to get every value out of every inch of space or mm. millimetre of space that they have in their country. But they have come to a point where they are incentivizing it, training and learning by actually paying a percentage fee of that. So maybe that's actually the shift in the sense mm. of government incentivizes using money to provide training yeah, to then yeah. improve the efficiencies. Maybe that's the answer to it all. Well, that's a pretty collaborative approach which would go hand in hand with the culture of BIM, wouldn't it? So, <laughs> Well, you know, it's hard enough to get government to make decisions on it to move forward, <laughs> let, let alone um, trying to, you know, fund and moving it. The yeah. thing is, is imagine, um, you know, if they took the view of the UK government with regards to efficiencies, they'd gain that. If they took the the views of the Singapore government where they're making their, their local local construction consulting teams powerhouses because mm. they're financially getting rewarded for being upskilled, it's a, it's a huge benefit because if they're more productive, then they're going to be able to sell more yeah. sell more services. Just a big cost up front. That's one well, of the that's, barriers. Well, that's the hardest thing. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about that before we turned our recording on about <laughs> the whole benefits of uh, spending money to make money. But yeah. people struggle with that. I find they're not business people. They're just happy being design consultants and get thrust into their <laughs> highest level of, in, you know, what is it, the level of incompetency. But now we're diverging way too far <laughs> off where we normally would be. But kind of getting back on track. With regards to technology and Mitchell Brantman, is it, has it made things better for your team? Like is it incentivizing in terms of uh, quantity surveyors wanting to come and work with you because of the way in which you're working? Is it making job satisfaction better? You know, and, and this is a dangerous one to say because everyone has their insurance but is it is it helping in, in some ways and de-risking? You know, mm. those kind of key issues in terms of the benefits of implementing these processes and technologies over and above the way in which it was, you know, mm. measured with a ruler and a, and, yeah. a, and a highlighter. Absolutely. I, um, I started at Mitchell Brantman right when they implemented software that was taking it off of desktop digitizers, which was technology that was pretty ahead of the curve in itself, yep. um, but taking it all onto the computer um, and being able to read drawings in that space. And that was already a shift and that's only talking at the 2D level. So when I started, I pretty much bred into getting technology and utilising technology because I saw what the previous QSs had been doing. So that's my passion. It's kind of the motive behind why I do it. And we've seen the benefits of it is even in a 2D sense, we see it. Then we jump to this 3D space. We spent a lot of R&D years making sure we understood the 3D models that mm. we were consuming. We're obviously not authors of models. So 
if we're going to be taking them on board, we need to trust them. And that's a big thing out of all of this. So we spent a lot of years just building up our own trust. And that's paid dividends because, yeah, it does. It does help with quantification. It makes it, it's not click of a button, quantifying. But in some uh, respects, it does start to automate itself. You know, the first estimate we do is spending a bit of time setting it up, looking for the right bits of information, filtering it through. And then we start to talk about this revision ability. And that's a big thing we promoted and have been promoting for years about, you'd call it nearly a game changer in the QS world. Mm -hmm. But more, it's just, like I said at the start, it's bringing back a relevancy to a QS starting from the start to finish. The more you keep us on board, the more you keep us engaged, the more we can do for a project. Rather than just plug in, say, unfortunately, jobs over budget, maybe cut back your floor finishes, reduce your landscaping and you're good, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So doing this in a 3D sense has brought back that relevance and saying, get us from the start and we can watch this job over and over again. We don't have to wait for the milestones or the traditional milestones. We can start to plug in any time you want. And that has helped us greatly with automation, with really quickly quantifying things, which enables us, and others have said it before me, to focus more on the actual cost planning side of our service, not just quantification. So that was only one part to your question was it has helped us internally. Mm. And that's an internal benefit that we can pass on to our design team. It makes us relevant in those conversations of saying, Um, hey, here's where the design's changed. Are you aware that the impact of what you've done has cost the design team blah, or cost the um, client X, Y, Z? And the client can be there in real time as well and watch that. That's been a really cool change. That's an internal benefit that extends beyond our own walls, I guess. Mm. I forget the rest of your question. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it was was one of my um, super questions. I think I asked always way too much detail on half of my questions, but... (laughs) From a risk standpoint, Mm. you know, your insurers. Now, I know that when I started to explain to uh, my professional indemnity insurers about five years ago when I was at Fulton Trotter about the idea of digital services and and the like, at the time they were like, I'm trying to understand, well, really all you're doing is just producing information and that sort of stuff. Has it made any changes to the risk profile? Yes and no because visuals paint a thousand words or whatever the saying is, that's correct. (laughs) So that helps in terms of communicating what we do and how we do rather than just literally a list of quantities that nobody knows where it comes from. But we are still held back by because we are consumers of the model and nobody models the same, not even in one practice we've found. (laughs) We're still at that level of we're constantly reproving or rebuilding up that trust of the models each time. And that's probably one thing as a bit of a a wider industry observation is we're still getting hit with these, we'll give you our model, but it's it's for information only with that stamp across the front. And that's something where, yeah, maybe it could affect our insurances along the way, but there's still a distrust between even receiving the models or the person giving it. You know, have the confidence to say the 2Ds were produced from the 3D, therefore that single point of truth is the truth. Um, So there's still a little bit of a barrier in that regard. But then it's actually probably creating a little bit more risk for you, right, because then you have that ability for one of your quantity surveyors to sit there and actually then have the skill to interrogate and know each individual different way in which someone's working. Mm. <laughs> so, may, well, may, I'll touch on this at the end of our chat, okay. but I, I think of a solution that might might uh, help that. 
whole approach. Um, and, and even to the point, though, going back, I think, have to be seven, eight years where you guys used to produce a guide on what you'd expect in your models. I think it was eight years or ten years ago. I think you had a, yeah. a guide that, that was written. Yep. Um, how's that been absorbed by the market? People actually aligning with it or do you still use that as part of your thing or is it, is it everyone moved on? <laughs> um, we, it's interesting. We're still seeing different project briefs ask for contributions to execution plans from a cost planning perspective yep. because it's still kind of that one line item, do cost planning from models yep. and fill in the blanks kind of thing. So that document has been pretty helpful in communicating them. That's kind of what also helped inform that guideline that was done by the AIQS and the NZIQS. So we've kind of pushed that to the side and said, well, this professional body is saying this is the guide. That's what we go with. We helped do that document or helped contribute to that document as well. So we agree with it. I'm pretty dirty about that document. <laughs> I put I put in a I put in the contribution and, and no attribution whatsoever. No so I I, <laughs> I really appreciate the uh, the response from uh, those agencies with that. But but those oh sorry to interrupt <laughs> those um those guidelines were formed from a lot a lot of conversations. We spent a lot of time ten years ago. It's probably when we first mm. met going around to consultants and saying how do you model? Like I said, we spent a lot of time researching how models were authored. So when we received them, how could we pick them apart for our purposes? And so a lot of conversations were, if you just tweak your methodologies or your processes a little bit, it would be really helpful. And we were quite, we were never trying to be imposing and saying, you must do this because down the supply chain, we need X, Y, Z. It was more just at a base input, models have some pretty cool data in it. Mm. We'll take what we can get. If you just amp it up a little bit, we get a lot, you know. Yep. Um, but the big thing for us, we also kind of started talking to the golden rules, I think we called them back in the day. And one of the big things that keeps playing in my mind when I work through this stuff is consistency. Mm -hmm. So disregarding if we say if you're at a, dare I say it, LOD 200 pointer, if you're at this design <laughs> development milestone, you need to have X, Y, Z data we're more of the opinion we'll take what we can get because there's always cool stuff that's useful in there but consistency is actually the bigger one that will aid or actually shut down our process or our workflow and an example of that which we've got at the moment is windows where half the building is done with the whole suite as one piece and other suites are done with each panel as its own so for us to quantify that is incorrect at some level because we've got half of it done this way half of the other way a structural example is beams under slabs and so sometimes the beams are sat under a slab mm. sometimes they punch through and go to the top of slab all cool if it's done one way or the other we'll figure out how to get the quantities but if it's half and half it kind of really inhibits how we can get something done through so again you can write as many BIM execution plans, as many guidelines as you want, but it comes down to understanding how the model was done and consistency is that one thing that keeps playing over in my mind is if I get the chance to sit in a room at the start of a project and say, Caitlin, how do you want this model to be mm. done? Just consistency. Everything else will work its way out, you know. So at the start you talked about not much change within the profession over the last five years. Mm. Are you seeing more models from industry than you were five years ago? Is that is that is that shifted forward in terms of uh, receiving models from architects and engineers? Uh, I'd say about the same. So it's not shifted really. 
there's definitely more users that are doing it. Again, we're consumers of models. Every mm. job run we ask, was this created from a 3D model if it's not already openly or freely given to us with our set of documents that we receive? We work with, you know, a certain amount of consultants. We kind of know who does models and who doesn't, so we know when to expect them or when not to. Mm -hmm. There's certainly more and more companies that are doing it, but ultimately we're still seeing a whole lot of it schematic level or preliminary level 2D documents and that kind of carries on through it. Again, we're also limited by the fact that QS is in our service level if we're not engaged from start to finish where we can see that full picture and if we're only seeing a small snapshot of it, we're limited to whatever documentation there is at that point. Mm. So individuals certainly there's more conversations. We're seeing more people jump up to the conversation for sure. But as a business, we're still probably seeing about the same amount. That's disappointing. Yeah, I'm sorry. But it shows that, well, it's not, it's not about you need to be sorry. It's the other <laughs> profession. It's the other uh, consultants that need to, to make the step up to the plate. But so obviously if you're seeing the same volume of models, is there any improvement? Is it getting better? You know, are we learning something in this industry <laughs> to actually give us some positive takeaways from today apart from us kind of recognising that we still have a long way to go? Yeah. Again, it's a mixed bag and it depends. Yep. I think when you say do we get quality models, it's a little bit subjective yeah. in the fact that who's taking the information out of this. We can have some really good-looking models um, without that data behind it. And as I said to you before. No substance. No substance. <laughs> and everyone says, you know, the I in BIM is the most important. We're working beyond the acronym and talking more about digital world. So um, information is still key. Mm. Um but we, we again, for all the execution plans that are in place, for all these LODs at different levels and you're required to put this data in, those become documents that kind of get pushed aside and people just fall into whatever they do at their practice for how they model at this point in time. And like I said, inherently by modelling, you're giving us base information that we need anyway. You know, if you model a wall, we're going to get an area from it no matter which authoring software, we're getting that base level of quantities. Mm. So for us, that's quality. That's something we can quantify from. If you tell us what that wall is, even better. Otherwise, we'll probably figure it out depending on what design phase we're at. But an example that I think is really interesting that makes me chuckle a little bit is I remember seeing someone that had worked really hard to create the perfect toilet suite. It was curved. It looked like a toilet. It had the button. It had the lid. It had everything looking great. Um, so someone has spent a lot of time doing that and I'm sure that's helpful um, size-wise for the code compliance and things like that. All we really want to know most of the way along cost planning is how many there are. <laughs> so a little box would have done equally as good. So when you say quality, some people are looking for different things. Yes. When it's made for a render, of course, it needs to have every bit of detail. Mm. So as a general rule, yes, the quality is improving. I think because practices are trying to upskill themselves for their own use as well. The yep. parametric modeling to help themselves and their efficiencies, we get the byproduct of that as well. As they upskill themselves, we get the byproduct of that. Now, are you finding that the better quality models are coming on the projects where there's a well thought out plan? Like, you know, that whole concept of a uh, failure to plan is a plan to fail. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a poignant question, I guess. In terms of the projects that you're seeing where the quality is better and the outcomes uh, in terms of the consumption of that information from your end is, in, is, is let's say, less risky or mm. easier because you, there's more no-ones and consistency, 
are you finding that that's occurring on those projects that have those well well set up plans or are like you just said before essentially the plans there then people throw it out that throw it kind of throw it in the filing cabinet and it just gets left there or a yeah. digital filing cabinet <laughs> these yeah. days uh, i think a plan is helpful mm. but it's going to be the people that are in the room and i find it's more practice base of who's doing it for again primarily their own benefit that others get to see that they say cool look how well this model is working for ourselves let's start to coordinate with other disciplines that's one benefit instantly it's a big plug in what we talk about is validation coordination and then they start to talk to us or we start to harass them at the door and say can we see your model too and when we see those people in a room talking about a really well executed plan it's because they already have that skill level so they see the plan we all agree to it it inevitably goes into some sort of file, whether digital or real, <laughs> and we get on with it kind of thing. So I think the plans have been helpful in getting expectations out there, but it still comes from self-motivated individuals and companies. And, and leaders like and the like. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a bit sad. It, but it is and it isn't, you know. It, it, still, it still means that people aren't following plans and it kind of throws a whole thing out the window with some of my crazier ideas. But... Um, well, I think just to add to that, plans need to be there as a bit of a fallback. And uh, I don't think I've mentioned it to this point yet, but I think our industry becomes a little bit fearful of the litigious side of it, you know, and hmm. they start to, and I, I spoke about fear before of just give us your model, take that stamp off the front of it because we'll use what we want and we're responsible for the quantities at the end of the day, however we get there. Hmm. And so those plans are good if we start to become that real contractual basis for when models and digital working becomes part of the contractual side. We haven't seen so much of that come through though because we still see this stamp at the front for information only. So why have we gone to doing all these plans? Because that's yeah. for the fallback. And we've actually had it thrown to us in a couple of instances where we said, oh, we've got your model but we're not seeing this, this, this information and they've come back, pulled out said plan and said, well, we weren't engaged to do that at this design phase, LOD, whatever oh. you want to say. <laughs> um, and so I think that just it could be helpful but like any contractual document, it's, it's more just if you really want to narrow down to the nitty-gritty and use it for that defensive purpose. Yeah, um, yes it has a no. purpose. <laughs> well, it has a, like I said, it has a purpose for expectations, certainly. As I said, we've formed our own execution plans to try communicate our expectations at some point rather than just conversations with people along the way. We thought we're saying the same thing over and over again, let's turn this into a document. I think that needs to happen at some level um, but the overarching cultural part of our industry is uh, it's become the barrier. Is it because of the way they're viewing it? See, the thing, one of the things that I've sat down and looked at and I recorded a webinar with 12D Synergy, I'm doing a presentation with uh, Future Infrastructure Summit as well on this whole concept of we've been doing it all wrong. And <laughs> my thoughts are, and yes, the whole concept of plans and, and the litigious nature, it's, it's because I think about people thinking about it wrong. It's like whenever you go into a project, I like checklists. Now I don't, I, <laughs> there's some checklists that I, that I was involved, that I that I had to deal with in, in my old practice that were over the top, right? They just were too much for me. But it's about coming up with a methodology of delivering projects so you're actually doing things efficiently. Mm. I honestly believe that, 
And I've spoken to Clive from Planley about this as well. And I said to him the other week, I said, oh, how good would it be if, as an industry in Australia, we set out a methodology and, it, and, it, and it's going to be different for every project potentially. But if we set up a base, method, base, base methodology for information exchange to occur, first of all, at the milestones of a project, and then we fill in the, the, the journey to get there. Mm. So imagine a scenario where the structural engineer only receives the information in a model that he needs to do his structure instead of getting the toilet. <laughs> We've got to move on from models and to a point where if you're doing a bill of quantities, there's a scenario whereby the model will have the quantity but then the specification and schedules have all of the information and details about the product selection to enable you to actually author that bill of quantities correctly. Mm. It has to be broader and I think that this inform- there has to be a shift from BIM to what are the information requirements yes. that you need to perform a task. And if everyone, and I think the reason why we, we struggle in the industry is because similar to, to asset owners not knowing what they need, mm. we truly don't know what we need either. <laughs> What's the bare minimum information? It's that whole yeah. concept of lean construction keeps pushing their agendas about lean construction and being very efficient in that. If we built buildings the way that we designed them, how bad would that be? <laughs> you know, it, it just it does my. You can head. say that because you're a designer background. Well, <laughs> no, but I just I, I I cringe at this all the time. But at the same time, your estimates are always coming too late. <laughs> no, and it's not a critique on quantity surveyors. It's yeah, because well, the, of the process. Yeah, it's the process. The process it? is already done, and mm-hmm. then it takes sometimes a week or two to generate an estimate on a very significant project. That's following that traditional milestone way, yeah, right? Yeah. And this is what we can become more relevant and more part of the conversation live if we're involved a bit more. I will say one thing is when we're talking about the execution plans and stuff and I don't want to poo-poo them too much because they help form consistency that I obviously so desperately desire. So they have their place quite certainly as a communication tool. I think we break through a lot and our successful projects are done when we talk about our expectations and eyeball someone. Communicate. Communicate. It's pretty easy. Take away any sort of digital environment as communication is the key. And it's funny you talk about not just using a model, we're talking about a whole database of information. That's pretty much basic quantity surveying is we've always been, it's, it's the essence of what we do. Particularly if you talk about bill of quantities times, that was always the point in time in a traditional sense where all the different disciplines got put in one place and got analysed in one place and that was the original validation, that was the original coordination and we were quite literally counting from one plan, referencing a specification and pulling it into that central document being the bill of quantities. And so that's what I really am passionate about is BIM is enabling this renaissance of that. That's how it should be. That's how a process starts to become streamlined is putting it in that central database. So yeah, I just thought that was interesting as you started talking along that about the database. I was like, that's what we do. That's, that's what we're meant to do when we're giving the we're given the information. It's you putting, you, it's you taking information, adding value to it and then providing information back yeah, so that right. people can then act upon. That's and that's right. the same transaction with everyone. Mm-hmm. An architect provides information to the structural engineer. The structural engineer goes, that's the idea that the architect's got. Yep. Then you'll design the structure around that. How do we make half, it stand up? Half the time they'll say, you know, how many air hooks have you got yeah, yeah. priced for this? <laughs> and then the services engineers, the poor the poor, the poor poor cousins of all the consultants <laughs> have to squeeze it into these spaces that don't exist. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, how – and I guess it's pertinent right now 
Um, and to put a greater time stamp on this whole conversation, obviously we're sitting at a point in time where interest rates have had consistent rises for up to 14 months, I think straight close. I think they might have skipped one month last year. How generous. Um, <laughs> well, the RBA are trying to do things to curb some things. So, yeah. you know, they're seen as the as the, the, the crook or the criminal or the, the evil person and all this, but they're having to do it because of the challenges that we have across all of Australia. Yeah. How can we as an industry provide greater certainty to our clients, you know, moving forward with this from a quantity surveying perspective mm. because there's going to be a million perspectives. Yep. Um, I have crazy other ideas that are definitely not related to uh, building information modelling <laughs> and probably don't even relate to this conversation at all but I won't touch on it at all. But, you know, before we started recording you talked about the benefits of bill of quantities and yeah. the last time I had a bill of quantities on a project, and I'm going to be 100% honest, was there was one that was done in 2005 I think. Okay was the last one I had that was a good one. Then we had one that I came in onto a project that was a few years later that it was not even used. There was a there was a we won't even talk about that project. But <laughs> but the last one that I know that was effectively used, we're talking now seventeen years ago. Yeah. When we're talking to builders and contractors and subcontractors, they're dealing with exponential growth in cost and expense with with materials and that. And we're talking always these these very, very short tender periods where they have to understand the project and quantify it. You know, mm-hmm. what's the benefits of this new renaissance of going back to bill of quantities? I think there's this potential to bring back bills in the digital sense and in a virtual sense that can really help, you know, exactly as you're talking about. The market right now is so volatile. We're working with our clients just to make projects stack up. So what's the easiest way to kind of cut through and get this job done? So we're just trying to think of how can we help the process, you know, and this is where this renaissance of bill of quantities is coming up, is tenders turned into this Send out a bunch of documents. A QS may or may not have done a cost plan so we at least know what the number should be. Mm. Um, but disregarding that, that's to the side, that's client side. Send out a pack of documents. The contractor receives said documents, packages it up or not and sends it to individual trades to then return to them a tender at the subcontract level. Contractor would look at them, put their best foot forward and get a tender back to the client side. That's a lot of steps. That's a lot of information to disseminate, as you said, in a very short tender mm. time. And when subbies are typically the ones that are out on site and the ones tendering, they're the ones doing it at nighttime. There's not too much time. We need to make that process as easy as possible. Mm. This is a way to do that. Why wouldn't we spend money up front, whether or not it's a massive lump sum or we can start to leverage this and make it as cheap as we can at a labour sense, but the value you will get out of that by streamlining that process at tender level, that is exactly what we need right now in this market where everything's hard and what hard means is more dollars. So it's got absolute value there. And we're talking about trade bill of quantities more so than the ASMM um, quantities because we're trying to make it as structured to what those subbies and how they rate as possible. So for the uninitiated, what's an what's ASMM? I do apologise. Yeah, Australian Standard Method of Measurement. There we so go. that's our for a non-quantity surveyors in the room. Quantity surveying <laughs> bible um, is that sets how we measure our yep. methodology, and we follow that. 
just sometimes we deviate from that just to make it a bit more streamlined. Yep. Yep. And that's where models are helping us. We get those bulk quants out for that as well. So we've got the starting point of where we think we need to do what we need to do to address the challenges we're facing here, which is an outcome, a deliverable rather than a process. Mm. And we're still seeing the challenges with industry not really moving forward as fast as I think we both agree that probably should. Yes. Apart from kind of some of the things we may have covered off on already, in terms of a closing kind of statement on the topic, what do you think? So actually let's do this from two perspectives and I'll ask him two questions so that we don't lose it again. Keep it simple for me. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Um, First of all, um, and I'll ask this on the quantity surveying side and then we'll we'll look at it from the consulting side. Mm -hmm. What can the quantity surveyors do to move forward in in regards to, you know, digitising? information rather than calling it BIM, let's call it sure. let's move it moving to the digital side of the world. Mm-hmm. What what would be your advice to the quantity surveyors that are listening right now that made it through to the end and all of our our um at at our back and forth? What would be your suggestion to the quantity surveyors that haven't embarked on these processes yet? Uh, a thing I have said to quantity surveyors and I still um, continue to say is uh, just start off small, just start off with something you trust. I think at the start of our conversation, I spoke about trust. There's kind of a foundation between communication that really helps in all of this. And so uh, I've spoken to a lot of quantity surveyors along my journey because I've represented at the AIQS level, the Australian Institute of Quantity Surveyors level. Um, and they've asked me, you know, how do we get into this? And it's more just grab a model, see what you can get out of it. You'd be surprised how much information you can get when it was never intended to be used for quantities. So we already start from a baseline of that. Then we get into the nitty gritty of consistency and technical capabilities and all the BIM execution plans. But for a quantity surveyor that might think it's too much for me, it's too hard for me, just ask for a model, have a go. In whatever platform you're using, in whatever platform it's authored, the big thing to how we've achieved what we've achieved is understanding at that level and then just picking it apart in a multitude of different ways. That's so the first step, take right? It step by step, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you build from there because you build the trust, you start to use the quantities. You can say with confidence, even if that stamp on the front for information only, yeah, but it was everything was created from that model, that single point of truth. We'll choose to use that. That's the responsibility on us. And that's always been the way in 2D sense. I don't want to say something too out of turn, but 2D documentation wasn't perfect. It isn't perfect. So at any level when we're given documentation full stop, we're taking responsibility for the quantities. Just have a go. Know that at a cost planning level you're you're covering it off, you know. So for the consultants out there that you might not be working with but from an Australian or a global sense, Mm. if they're not handing models to quantity surveyors that they're working with yet, what would be your advice for them in terms of, you know, how how can they transition forward? Mm Mm-hmm. From maybe actually let's just let's take, let's let's fast forward it a little bit. Maybe the handing models to the quantity surveyors already. Yep. Let's assume that. Sure. What can be a suggestion from you with regards to taking off that no risk, you know, no low, you know, don't use this model for measuring. Mm-hmm. Like, what would be your thoughts on that in terms of a suggested path for them? I think have some conversations with people down the supply chain. Understand what your model is being used for. Um, we've had conversations with people that just didn't even realise that we go to the extent of taking off quantities at certain levels and we show them and we sit in a room with them and say, this is what your model looks like from our side. It's actually pretty good. Um, We trust it. We've learned to trust it. So just 
keep doing it or have those gritty conversations of if you tweak it this way, it would be much more helpful. Take that or leave that. We've been, we've had both options Mm. along the way as well. Um, But just have a conversation further down the supply chain. We are a representative of that kind of gateway to the rest of the supply chain. You know, we see the model generally before it gets handed to the contractor, to the subcontractor, to the fabricator. Mm. So we're that first pass. So we have been that voice of there's people looking at your model. This is what we see. Um, There's some good stuff in there. There could be better stuff in there. And then, as I've said before, be consistent, you know, whichever way you go down there, be consistent. Oh, one of the things I've thought about is about communicating what is and what isn't model because mm. the consistency is one thing. Mm-hmm. But if something isn't if something isn't communicated to you as a quantity surveyor, there's only so much you within your expertise can assume, mm. you know, the, 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 the 100 queries that come back during an estimate, you know. Yeah. What is your thoughts on this, you know, needing this, you know, what are the skirtings you've got? So it is more than just the model. It's about communicating a model and providing associated information to enable you to complete your estimate. Really, that's it's a package of information rather than just being a model entirety. Well, generally speaking, it's kind of a byproduct of our service. We become that um, bit of a a vetting and (laughs) asking those questions, you know, because, again, as I said, we're taking responsibility for the cost plan, not just the quantities, for the cost plan. So we do ask these obscure questions right at SD level and you're thinking, we don't need that detail yet. People do. The client wants to know that whole picture. Um, so we've always kind of been that prompt to be like, yeah, what about this? What about that? I don't think that always needs to be dictated to us because we're going to figure it out, you know, whether it's modelled or not. And the way we've always done our process is start with the model, get what we can, fall back to 2D and then ask the question in between. Our One of our main roles and benefits for the design team and the client is filling in the blanks or at least asking the questions to get those filled in. All right, so for the designers out there, make sure that you uh, take the time to uh, ask your quantity surveyor how you can make their life easier. So we've gone on a good journey today, Caitlin. <laughs> um, thank you very much for your time. Now I have one final question for you and it's the one that I ask all of my guests What does BIM mean to you? Yeah, sure. BIM to me is opportunity. And uh, for all the benefits and everything we've spoken about, my overarching thing is opportunity. At a personal level, it's enabled me to work with some pretty cool people, to work on some amazing projects. It's enabled me to travel. So I've been given some really cool opportunities just by following down this path of technology, digitization and BIM. As a professional level, as a QS level, it's opportunities to bring back our relevance to the table, to say, you know, we're not just a fee for task service. We can be more than that. Utilize our services to what they're really valuable for as we've just spoken about and then as an industry the opportunity to make sure we get rid of as much wastage as possible where we can people that are already on this journey and already believers are saying look at all these benefits and it's just not quite cutting through at this point so there's Mm. so much opportunity at every level for our industry to prove this Um, and people are seeing the benefits I just don't think we're seeing all the benefits there's opportunity for more there's always opportunity for more but thanks once again for your time Caitlin thank you so much for having me So for more information on Caitlin and Mitchell Bratman, please head over to the podcast section on the SKUD website for further reading. Now I look forward to sharing our next podcast with you in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition, which is powered by Bond University's Building Information Modelling Program.
digital transition.